Hello and welcome back to the second episode of the Loudoun Libraries podcast. My name's Connor and I'm part of the team that helps to bring amazing gigs to your local library. Today's guest on the podcast is the founder and CEO of Get It Loudoun Libraries and Wigan local legend Stuart Parsons. In this episode, we talk about the origins of Get It Loud and its birthplace, Lancaster Library, one of the finest independent venues in the north. We delve into its incredible history of hosting gigs by some of the biggest names in music and discuss the challenges that Stuart has faced in developing the organisation since 2005. Stay tuned to hear all about it. So welcome to the podcast, Stuart. How are you today? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for inviting me. Should be good. Looking forward to this. So you have a bit of an interest in history because you started working at Lancaster Library. Um, Was it as a music librarian? Yeah, in um, 1999, I was working at the Harris. I'd worked at the Harris for 13 years, Harris Library in Preston. And I was working in the music library there. And a job opportunity came up at Lancaster Music Library. Um, for like a senior music library's librarian post. So it was just a fantastic opportunity really to kind of um, shape a music library and develop it and um, kind of re-identify it in your own, in your, you know, in your own um, mould really. Um, so yeah, 1999, I remember it clearly because I remember looking around the library at the time and um, thinking, oh, I could really do something with this. It was like, there was too much old stuff, you know. It was a lot of um, a lot of old tat, really, in the CD racks, um, unfortunately. But that gave sometimes when you go as like a mystery shopper, especially before an interview, it gives you the real impetus and kind of motivation to make a change. Um, so yeah, I mean, in 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 the first instance, working in Lancaster Music Lab, it was all about updating it, making it more contemporary, making it more user friendly making young people want to come because I was doing a lot of research about the stats about 14 to 25 to 14 to 19 year olds um, consuming music and I think it was something like 92% of young people love music but 92% of young people weren't visiting the music library you know so something there was a there was a gap there there was there was um, a perception that the library wasn't for them and I think it was part of my job to make sure that you know, their perceptions started to change and they thought, well, the library is for them. And it's it's for me because, you know, we're stocking, you know, bands that they wanted, to, they were getting into it. So at the time it was Kaiser Chiefs and Franz Ferdinand and um, Kasabian and Interpol. I mean, just a, just a massive raft of music around those 2000s, early 2000s, the Strokes, etc. And... Um, I think it was a key thing. It felt like a very privileged role, actually, because music's always been really important for me. But if young people in particular are identifying barriers to access, then it doesn't really matter what stock you've got. You know, even if you get in the min, um, they need to be able to consume something. You need to make it interesting. So, And so from that point, it was like radically updating the stock. And then it was making it plainly obvious to all the all the schools and colleges in the near vicinity that this library was doing, going places, you know. And then after that, that's when we started, or I started um, engaging the uh, major record labels and getting freebies and badges and stickers and signed t-shirts, you name it. I mean, we just went after everybody really. Um, and the, 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 the music industry really responded 
brilliantly. And I fashioned this letter, this proposal saying, look, we're a library, but we want to do brilliant stuff with the library. Um, you know, the library's got outdated perceptions around it and we want to kind of break those down. So it felt like a pioneering role in the first instance. You did so much with that role because that was such like a light bulb moment to to have the idea of having gigs in libraries. And I think, like you were saying, um, it, at, the, at that time you were diversifying the music collection. You know, not just by bringing in new bands into the CD collection, but bringing in live music itself. And I think now with streaming going on people are even less likely to go into the library to look for a CD or to look for something physical. So um, the, the model of what we're doing has kind of endured in a way. Yeah, well, I mean, at the time, I'm not sure if this is still the case, but the BPI agreement um, kind of dictated that you couldn't lend a CD to the public until three months have elapsed after its commercial release. So if you can imagine you know, um, Scissor Sisters would um, release their album. And you'd have kids coming in going, oh, have you got that new Scissor Sisters? And I'd say, well, you have to come back in three months. And, you know, the offer really was quite a poor one, really. Um, you know, it's fine if you want to wait three months, but you need to be in a certain mindset to do that. And I don't think young people particularly, um, you know, enjoying music with friends and in peer groups are going to wait three months um, just for the library to stock it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that was one of the reasons. I mean, sometimes with innovation and kind of innovative practices, you really, you need to be on that front line because you are identifying what can be changed and what can be improved and what can make a difference. So if you're on the front line and you're thinking, well, hang on, this, this three-month thing isn't helping, you know, and digital music was really exploding around that time and people were downloading stuff and not considering the library as a viable kind of tastemaker point of you know contact for music so we had to come up with something different and i think that's why get it loud get it loud in the lab is um was born really because it was just a reaction to the fact that you know we were poor poor relation on the high street in terms of you know we were trailing behind hmv we were trailing behind apple um i don't think spotify had been born then actually i'm not I'll have to check that but um it was like, well, what can we do with this fantastic space, you know, this magnificent venue with all these books? And that's why those, those artists that we couldn't kind of uh, put the CDs out at our first point of uh, release, we could go after them. Although, um, I mean, I, I build my confidence up slowly, we get it loud. I remember being offered um, um, Hot Chip, Hot Chip. And I remember, I remember chatting to, um, I think it was Stephen from there, either management stable or record company. And he said, how about Hot Chip, come and play a gig for you? And I actually turned him down. <laughs> and, I, and I think that I turned him down because um, we just had our first show in 2005 and we didn't really have any funding for it. So I was piecing together how we would make it work. And I think it probably came just a bit too soon after that first show. And I just said, oh, well, and I think just petered out. I mean, I, I, I think about it now and I just hang my head in shame, you know. But it wasn't like it is now where we've built it up and it's now an arts council MPO. It was very much hand to mouth. 
So we'd win an award. Remember, we won the National Love Libraries Award in 2008 or 2007. So that got £5,000. So that immediately could be used for gigs and looking at buying our own staging and stuff. Um, so in the beginning, it was quite, quite um, um, uncertain how it would be funded because obviously, you know, it's a pop-up venue and everything needs to be um, hired in. <coughs> and I'm... <coughs> I was very adamant that, <clears throat> excuse me, I was adamant that all, we would exceed expectations on every level. So there wasn't going to be any um, mileage in just hiring a very cheap PA system and an engineer who didn't know what they were doing or, and so this stuff costs money really. And I suppose those first shows were a little bit rough around the edges, but in 2008, was it 2007, eight, um, Bat for played. And the sound guys were so good that that so that the sound for that show had to be good, and it was perfect. And I remember we just um, got in touch with the guys who delivered that sound that day and said, "We want to work with you now." It's interesting that show actually because um, Bat for Lashes, Natasha did um, a Bruce Springsteen cover, um, "I'm on Fire," and apparently Bruce caught up in it. He 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 he's seen the YouTube um, footage and let Bat Flashes know how amazing that cover was. And I just love the idea that Bruce has seen one of our shows. He's seen a clip of one of our shows. It blows my mind a bit. Um, that's by the by. But um, yeah, so that's, that, that's how the, that's the programme unfolded in those first few months, really. We had a massive hiatus after 2005. We had a, a Battle of the Bands, and then we waited till 2006. And that's when the Long Blondes played, and that's when we really kind of hit the national consciousness, I suppose, with NME kind of, they rolled the story out because they were darlings of NME, and they rolled the story out for about three weeks running, just these fantastic photos. I remember just buying the NME and multiple copies and <laughs> kind of gorging over this um, story that we'd um, released on the world. I'd have done exactly the same, honestly, you know, uh, I mean, so it kind of, it was a solution really, wasn't it? Because it was, it was kind of easier to get a band in live than wait like three months for their, to get their CD in a way. Yeah, there was no way, there was no way around the three month hiatus uh, with a BPI agreement. But what we could do, another thing we did, we were like getting these CDs anyway. Um, from record companies who were sending, I remember Sylvia at um, Universal sending about 100 CDs, all kind of um, Universal Music albums. And some of those albums were the albums we were waiting to actually come in, <laughs> come into stock. So we'd run competitions, you know, that kids could win these CDs anyway. But to, to, to enter the competition, you would have to, a bit on like um, Costa do, you know, when you collect um, those stamps every time you visit a Costa or a Cafe Nina. And every time people came into the library to collect, to borrow CDs, they would give them a stamp and with six stamps, um, you know, we'd just whiz them a freebie. Um, and that, that, that was a really nice offer at the time. It was uh, just made us more contemporary, you know, it just kind of was shunting us forward into the 21st century, um, it was just very necessary really. But yeah, I mean, innovation is a form of solution, you know. For me, 
live music was just another resource. It it wasn't any any less important than the CDs on the shelves or the you know the collections of um, Ian McEwen on the in the book section. It it was a very very important resource that can make a difference to people's lives. And I think the difference was you you didn't come in and kind of borrow it for three weeks um, like you would a CD or a book. You would come in and enjoy it and you'd have the memory forever really of seeing some of these bands that you might have um, been reading about in in the music press because enemy was still still reading decent numbers at the time and of course myspace was really burgeoning at that time that's where i would come across a lot of the artists we went after um and yeah so it was kind of a it was a you were, you were kind of buying into an experience in the library, but it was still a cult, very important cultural arts experience with live music. You were mentioning that, that we had Bat for Lashes, one of those early, really high quality shows. Um, in that same year, we had Adele, who is someone that we always like to uh, shout about as part of our Loudoun Libraries alumni. Um, and she was a support act, which is another yeah. crazy thought. So. What was that experience like of Adele rocking up to Lancaster Library? Mr. Hudson and the Library were going to do this um, UK-wide um, tour of, of libraries because Mr. Hudson and the Library, this new band on Island Records, had um, come out with this fantastic um, debut album. And it was all pencil, but it wasn't selling very well. And we had Kate Nash uh, build to support and because Kate Nash was um, somebody else we, we, we'd got with long chased at the time. Um, and then, uh, fully enough, I was on holiday in New York and I was looking at MySpace and there was a massive, um, Kate Nash couldn't play. And, and, and I thought, oh no, I've lost Kate Nash. And I was distraught. I was on holiday in this magnificent, exciting city. And just, all I could think about was Kate Nash not playing our show. And, I just went after other artists and I was chatting to ITB and I wasn't even going after Adele um, like, you, you know, you hunt down prey. And, and I do not know how this email got through the firewall at Lancashire County Council, but um, the agent at ITB said, what about Adele? She's fucking great. And how that email ever reached me is just, absolute luck you know and i think sometimes these things just happen in life don't they where an email really should have been barred from getting into my inbox from lancashire county council and um anyway i went online i checked out adele on myspace obviously jaw-droppingly amazing you know at the time she was only releasing like 10 to 15 seconds of each song so on town glory 10 seconds and you're like oh god that voice is amazing and it was she was coming from that stable of like Jack Peñate and those XL recordings type artists who there was something going on with songwriting where it was it felt really fresh and exciting. You couldn't really pin it down. It was kind of soulful, but still, I don't know, it was like classic songwriting that were coming from somebody who was really, really young. And um, I thought, oh my word, God, I was so excited. Anyway. Um, come the day, I mean, these tickets were £2.50 to see Adele. Um, and we sold about 186 I remember really clearly. And, you know, everything was just falling into place. Mr. Hudson and the library were on, um, uh, uh, were built to be on Jules Holland, later with Jules that week. 
So, I mean, everything was just like, my God, you know, the gods are smiling on us here. Um, so Adele rocked up and um, she would have been 16, 17. Um, and, you know, there's some funny stories about it, really. I mean, Andrew helps us out at Lancaster Library, didn't recognise her. Well, he wouldn't because she was unknown. You know, she wasn't Adele, as we know her. And they were both having ciggies outside and um, Andrew was saying, oh, he comes to the show. And um, Adele was just <laughs> playing, nah, I'm playing, you know. And um, she was just really cheeky and good fun. I remember for the whole of Mr. Hudson, Mr. Hudson sat, she just sat at the side of the stage drinking a Bex, you know. Um, she was she was she was brilliant. But when she played, I mean, she played four songs, and we'd gone across um, the road to borrow a bar stool because the chairs in the library were just weren't really suitable for a guitarist. So we borrowed a bar stool from across the road from the pub and um, she was just amazing. She started playing and we all just looked at each other and I mean, it's there on YouTube, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really capture the excitement really, or the kind of, the kind of, that kind of understanding of, oh wow. And I think that's an intoxicating kind of um, brew. The fact that, you know, the, these amazing singers, these fabulous artists are, are actually, you know, that song, that breath, that whatever you want to call it, is out there in a library space. Um, it, it messes with my head sometimes, the more I think about it. Uh, but she played four songs and got a massive round of applause. And then I think it was probably eight months later that her album came out. And people were coming to the library saying, was that the girl who played, you know, played here? It felt like a movement at the time because the first few rows, you could, you, we were on, we started to get on first name terms with them, you know, people were just buying into every show. Because I think they realized, oh, the library is a, can be a tastemaker, you know. It's, um, you know, these bands that are appearing at Lancaster Library for £3.50, £5. You know, we've seen them on Later with Jules um, two months later and they're going on to Megastardom. Um, not all, but, you know, a good, good few. Um, and it just felt like a part of a real exciting kind of thing at the time. It still does, still does. I think it was just, it was just more, because of the music library being a music library, um, it felt incredibly organic, you know, and holistic that this music library, this, these great sounds were coming out of this music library. And, you know, I'll never forget it. those gigs like the long blondes and having Adele supporting and Mr. Hudson and stuff that was really when it all started gaining traction and everything and you were you were mentioning that we had Florence and the Machine in 2008 um I think the same year as Dog Days was doing really well Enemy had reviewed the gig and that you know they mentioned how she was on stage uh, reading from a book about Green Day drinking from a china teacup and stuff so yeah, that, that's just a mad story. You know, I, I read that she said, go to more libraries, get more books, keep libraries alive. And she even said the library's so cool. So that's a lot of high praise from one of the biggest stars in music. Yeah, it was, she was fantastic. Fully enough, I felt quite... She, she came across... I remember Walton dancing with a keyboard player into the library. Um, this, you know, amazing, wonderful figure that Florence is. I remember thinking, oh, wow. And I, th I, th 
I didn't really chat to him much. I mean, sometimes the, 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 the amount or level that you chat with artists varies ra radically. You know, there's some artists who you imagine you're going to chat to a lot and get to know and try and be buddies with. And then there are those that you think, well, I don't think they're going to be particularly friendly or they might not be um, as library-minded or have kind of swallowed the get it loud ethos as much as you might hope for. Um, but with Florence, it was just one of those things where I thought, I don't want to go and bother her. She looked quite shy. She looked quite coy, really. Um, but again, one of those artists who comes into the room when they're on stage. And even then, you know, that wasn't sold out, that show. Um, I think, again, it was probably about 180 people. Um, and she was she was just so fantastic. I mean, there was a punk um, whiff about her at the time, I thought, you know. Um, but she had all the stuff. She had all the paraphernalia with the old bird cages on stage. And they dressed the set really beautifully. Um, dressed the stage. And, yeah, she was reading Green Day's biography because she's a massive Green Day fan. Um, and just really engaging with people. She did, she did some great photos for us in the children's library. And then she stood behind the lending counter and just did a massive load of signings, you know. But music then was, it was far more exotic than it is now. So that was 12 years ago or so. And there was just an air of, more of an air of mystery about it. I don't know if the air of mystery just left music slightly. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think some artists sort of do try and cultivate that persona and that mystery and maybe hold back from engaging with their fans as much. And then others are really open and conversational with their fans. I think both are valid, really, because um, yeah. it depends whether you're playing sort of the long game or the short game and stuff. Um, yeah, you mentioned, you know, how we've had some amazing support acts and in 2009 we had marina and the diamonds um she's one of my favorite artists and that that supports a lot was just before her debut album uh, the family jewels and to me she's one of the like more eccentric pop stars to emerge uh, in the last 10 years so what what was that like having her support because she's got quite a, a shocking voice when you first hear it yeah i love marina she was she was dead chatty she was lovely i fell in love with her a bit really i mean she was just so smashing i mean it was very, she was coming out around that time do you remember the kind of wonky pop stuff that was around that time late 2000s she was um she was a bit of an advocate of that at the time i remember very clearly she was very disappointed with her performance she was getting off and she was just asking her all the bandmates was that all right was that all right um she was she was a bit um self-conscious I remember chatting to her outside because all these artists, you know, smoked at the time. So you'd always be out just chatting and having a fag and um, having a laugh. What we had then, what I didn't realise then as well, I used to curate from 2005 to 2010. I seem to have much more of a free licence to book supports. It's not as easy now. Um, it's a bit more controlled, but I would just go out and book somebody and say well we've got a support so <laughs> but it served me really well I mean it's the kind of, it's one of those things where you know you just got to break the rules to get get somewhere I mean I think just some just gentle doing it for the right reasons rule breaking uh, I would recommend it really
by 2010 it's it's a new decade and you know already having more future stars really um and as you were saying i think the the template of artists that could fit into the library was just broadening and broadening you know it was some alternative stuff but also you know really pop stuff can exist in the library too so ellie golden in 2010 right at the height of her sort of stardom really you know starry-eyed and your song was in the top five with you know within two months of her playing that show so there must have been like a lot of buzz around her coming to the library yeah i remember with ellie i mean she just kept popping up in uh, music week because um the library subscribed to music week the kind of um industry kind of journal you know that comes out every week and um I just see, kept seeing her name, seeing her name, and I kept thinking, I better check her out just in case, um, you know, we miss out on something special here. And um, yeah, I really loved um, Ellie's early stuff. I mean, right then, she wasn't this pop uh, creation. She was more a singer-songwriter. There was lots of folk, pop leanings, really, in her work, and just really liked her. So that was a show where she was booked on the strength of, again, on the strength of her... Um, songwriting abilities a lot, a lot of the artists when i look back have been brilliant songwriters um i think that's where there must be something in me that loves classic songwriting um or somebody who can craft really great pop songs i think we we're always finding artists that kind of have that sensibility even though they might work across different genres so Ellie Golden was more sort of folk pop but then the same year had the vaccines and that's kind of more rock but definitely has very catchy choruses and things um I think from what I've seen about that show it was quite a short but sweet set and I imagine it was quite a rowdy one it, well they were amazing really and um Justin Watcher was at, um gonna play Langster Library under a different name he he toured under um, a pseudonym before that. Great rock sensibilities, great pop sensibility. Knew what to do with a two and a half minute song, you know. But that first, uh, if you wanna, again, Music Week did me a massive favour, you know, because they were they were touting the vaccines very early. And I remember thinking, I need to get my head around this guy, um, these lads. And I, you know, I heard the single. It's such an instant. It's an instant hit, isn't it? There's nothing not to like about um, those first few tunes. Um, so they, yeah, they were booked and, um, that didn't sell very well, actually. They, that, sometimes you're just too early. Sometimes you're too ahead of the curve, you know, you know, we, we've got this reputation as being early adopters and sometimes, which is great. Um, it, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes you're an early adopter and you get the band for a smaller fee, but you don't have the audience either. And, you know, ideally, um, you're an early adopter when you have a band, so like, um, Big Moon or the Amazons and they're around a certain figure but it also sells out and that's when you've got that synergy of commercial interest and um, buying from the public but also you were just got there at the right time as well um, so you could afford to put these, band, these bands on. Um, yeah they did about 23 minutes and they kind of um, just left to this wave of feedback I remember a friend at the time telling him, saying, is that it? Are they coming back? <laughs> is that it? And I was like, yeah, that's it. Isn't it great? Um, you know, because at the end of the day, these, you know, most of our shows around that time were about £6 um, to get in. 
they've got quite short songs anyway the vaccines i think like usually yeah. only about two and a half minutes or something but it's Probably kind of what makes them so all of their songs just dive straight into the point you know i really like them especially like the bass player there's always usually one member of the band that you get on with fantastically well one thing that always discern as always irritated me about that song um that gig was the lack of coverage we got of it you know there's hardly any photos i don't know what i was thinking that night but i, I hardly took pardon me i hardly took any and um it torments me that <laughs> we've got a few headshots but they're not very good um so if anybody's got any um fantastic full length um or um panoramic panoramic shots of the vaccines with books in the background i'd love to see them because um i don't know many yeah i mean you mentioned that some shows you know they're not like instant sellouts and sometimes we get artists a bit a bit too early um but i think that's kind of the beauty of it really and i think there's been a lot of talk around the importance of independent venues um throughout everything that's been going on with the pandemic and how it's important that venues like this exist because bands need to play these early shows somewhere, you know, and we're yeah, giving we're, them a platform to do that. Yeah, we, we you know, I'd like to think we've, we've played a very, we, um, amongst other venues um, and organisations, play a vital part in nurturing a band's journey and talent and just giving them a stage, giving them a stage, giving them a venue, giving them a platform, giving them fans. I really do think we've um, done our bit really for the music industry in terms of um, always being open to new artists, putting them on, sometimes with very few people there, you know, um, but you've got to keep, it'd be very easy just to go out to the easy, you know, spend more money, do less shows and be sold out all the time. But, you know, I don't, know how much value there would be in that as a full program i think it's fine to you know when we put back to jury on a couple of years ago obviously we knew that show would sell well his, his radio play was strong the album was amazing um you know so that that was an easy sell um but we couldn't do baxter every night of the week it just wouldn't be fair on the new bands coming through um so yeah it's always a balance but i think i'm, I'm very proud of the, the artists we've um, supported an interesting one where it didn't work out was um, wolf alice and with wolf alice i'd heard them on um I, I used to watch soccer am on sky and they used to pump out this brilliant indie music that would kind of soundtrack the goals the goal action of the week and i remember i heard wolf alice i thought oh my god that's amazing again you know three minute singles that's stop you doing your tracks and you've got to find out who it is i found out it was wolf alice and that was really wrapped up really quickly booking wolf alice did the um, friday night in lancaster and the saturday night in um liverpool or saturday and sunday either way um and i think for each show we had about 60 to 80 people in so very few you know um and you're just ahead of the curve. You're just really ahead of the curve. But you're ahead of the curve and you've paid £600 for a band that's going to win the Mercury Music Prize, you know. Exactly. And I think it's taking bands a little bit longer now to to really break through. I think when you look at the timeline, you know, some of these artists, you know, like Alt-J, we had them in 2012 supporting. 
Ghost Poet, and then the same year they get a Mercury Norm and then go on to huge success. So that's like very, very rapid rise to fame. And then other artists, it takes them five years plus to, to really come into their own. I've always said, you know, we we don't archive the past so much as um, showcase the future. That's what Getting Loud in Libraries is about. Um, it's like future library, really. Um, libraries historically have archived books, they've archived um, magazines and newspapers and family trees and all sorts of stuff. And we don't archive, we taste make, you know. Um, mm. And we're kind of trying to predict what might be kind of popular or mainstream in the future. Um, so we're kind of saying, you know, look to the library. You want to know what's happening, look to the library. Yeah, I think, you know, the affordability of our gigs makes them something where people can sort of take risks because, you know, a lot of arena shows nowadays, they're like, obviously you've got a huge production value with fireworks and everything, but it's kind of like £70 a seat and things it's not you know these are sort of once a year events for some people um but our shows are usually around a tenner maybe less and um you know they don't all happen in the evening as well so it gives people you know they can take a chance on an artist that they may have only heard a couple of songs and um hear new material on albums that aren't yet released so yeah i think it's really important it's just having all the it's making the shows as making the program, the live program as inclusive as possible. And I think the matinee format has done that. I and mean, we've done matinees since we did um, a band called Yuck in about 2011, 2012, possibly. Um, fantastic show at Lancaster Library. Um, and what you find with the matinees is it, it, music, live music can be part of someone's Sunday. Um, as well as everything else, it, it, it just strips so many barriers away. So Sunday afternoons in a lot of the towns that we work in, there's very little to do. And we are giving families in particular um, an opportunity to enjoy music together. You know, parents who would have to normally book babysitters and think about um, transport there and back to a, um, a city centre gig. These are doorstep gigs with future Grammy winners, you know, and... Um, not, I, I don't think that tagline's fraudulent in any respect, really. Um, this is what we, we would like to, you know, it's a gift, really, to the community that you can come down on foot to a local library and see some brilliant artists for a small, you know, a modest um, ticket fee and bring your kids and it's all safe. And then you're back, as we say, in time for country file and, you know, if you're lucky, Antiques Roadshow. Um, if it's a school night, kids can still do their homework. Um, it's just a brilliant, you know, it's two hours in someone's day. So doors are 2.30 and everything's wrapped up by 4.30. But who knows, post-COVID, these shows might take on even more importance. The fact that, you know, if people are more cautious about a nighttime economy where, you know, there's been um, a horrible virus that's been so catastrophic for the communities. Um, the fact that a gig is happening in the afternoon in broad daylight um, with a, a venue that doesn't sell alcohol, that might be a really kind of appetizing offer um, in the future. 
I mean, I think it's an appetizing offer now, but I think, you know, people's mindsets might shift a bit. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. Mm, I think in terms of like engaging like young people to go into music and pick up a guitar and things as well, you know, mm. shows like ours where there's no sort of barrier between you and the artist, you can get really up close that's going to have a really strong impact. And, you know, with the shows being all ages as well, um, kids can come down at like five, six years old, and that might be the the spark that makes them want to be a musician. It might be their, their first gig, whereas, you know, at an arena show or something, you might be sat hundreds of metres away in a block and you don't get that same connection to the artist because you're so far away. Yeah, wherever you sit, wherever you stand in one of our shows, you feel close. You feel like you're on top of the band, really. And we do have evidence that young people are being positively inspired to, you know, a lot of our bands, and especially because so many, we support so many women in the industry. We, um, Elizabeth did some data capture this past week, and I think 66% of the artists we showcase are female um, women identify as women and I think that's an amazing statistic you know I think the the national average is something like 22 percent um and I've always loved women in rock growing up I I grew up loving the pretenders in particular Blondie um Susan the Banshees Kate Bush these were massive massive um indicators for me they really had a strong influence on the way I grew up listening to music ABBA you know uh, massive fan and I think it's just um, coming through now in my professional capacity really putting on music um, and I think in particular say you're a young girl say you're 12 13 or even younger you go with your mum or dad to um, one of our gigs and then you see a woman drummer bashing away and having fun and doing it for a living that's a that's a massive thing that's a massive um, imagination boost isn't it and you know, we, and then we do get people kind of feeding back to us that, oh, actually, um, our daughter now has decided she wants to be a drummer or a singer or a bass player. And I just, my heart just leaps because that's part of it, really. That's showing, that's illustrating, mm. you know, what young people could grow up to be. Because some of the kids in these areas, it might not be till they're 18 and they go off to a city um, when they're a bit older that they actually start seeing live music for the first time and by that point they kind of lost a lot of the the childhood you know energy and determination and curiosity about about music and um, so it might kind of be too late at that point to capture some people i think it's a real powerful experience for a young person to come to one of our shows however young they are see the artist enjoy the artist go and chat to the artist and have the artist say, oh, yeah, you follow your dream, you know. And I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but, I, I mean, my dream really is when I'm in my rocking chair and, you know, sat by the sea in 30 years' time, uh, to read about young people who, or musicians of the day saying, well, I went to this gig in Birkenhead Library, or I went to this gig in Hull or Lancaster or Kendall or Barrow, you know, it's only a small town. Nobody ever came to my town. But then these bands came to the library and play, and it's because of that that I am now that you know I'm kind of a little part of me feels really warm, kind of <laughs> visualizing that um, in twenty years' time those kids are going to be you know collecting Grammys and saying, "Well, I owe, I owe all this to the library," <laughs> you know. 
I mean, that would be um, that would be success, probably. Mm. Well, hopefully, hopefully that happens. I mean, we've had a lot of inspiring artists, you know, like you were saying with female drummers like War Paint, um, you know, bands, female-fronted bands like The Big Moon, Dream Wife. These are really inspiring artists. Um, I think it's not just inspiring young musicians, though. It's encouraging people to connect with the music industry in general so we've got the get allowed academy which means that people can get involved in uh, workshops with social media and um, running the gigs selling merchandise uh, sound engineering everything like that and that's how i got involved with get allowed came to the uh, lucy rose show at lancaster oh, library yeah. and then saw a leaflet about the academy on the way out and i've been helping at shows ever since really so I think, you know, it's really important that we provide those opportunities for people to get into an industry that's very hard to get into. You know, we give lots of opportunities to hard to reach young people, to young people who are living in very difficult circumstances. People who are living in social, social and economically challenging circumstances. But all these young people deserve a chance. It shouldn't be just the, you know, posh kids from London who get to... Um, you know, get get to learn the skills and get the get the building blocks to support their careers. I think everybody. It's just about making a level playing field for everybody in the creative industries. And thankfully, we do that through Gillil Academy. I think it's hugely important that working class kids, especially in areas where bands don't travel on tour that much. You know, you always read about kids who live in certain parts of the world. Think, well, not you know, I'm never going to be discovered living in. Barnsley you know I come from Barrow how am I ever going to get a job in the creative industries or get a job in the music industry that's what we need to level out I think it's hugely important that people just don't necessarily always have to go and live in London or one of the big cities mm -hmm. I think I think it's important that um, there are opportunities everywhere really and music's everywhere music comes from everywhere you know musicians are born everywhere um, and I just think it's hugely important. Yeah, I mean, even coming from Manchester myself, there is a really big music scene here, but it's not necessarily very accessible. You know, a lot of the independent venues and even larger venues, they operate as businesses and they haven't really got the time to nurture new talent or the funds necessarily. So I think Get Allowed has a really open door policy with you know, if, if you want to get involved in the industry and you want to learn more about it, then you can do so on your doorstep in a sort of less pressured environment because we're not a very super commercial, fast, fast paced organization. So it's been it's been really good for me to like gain those skills gradually over 20, 30, 40 shows rather than, you know, being having everything thrown at once at me. Yeah, it's important. I mean, bear in mind, I mean, I, I was, so I grew up loving the library and loving pop music. I had two great loves, and I've been lucky enough to make that a career. But it does take time. So Get It Live in Libraries has been going now 15 years. We've had 15 years of gigs, so that's probably close to 450, 500 shows now. It doesn't sound a lot, but um, it feels over the course of 15 years, but it it is when you're thinking it's a library setup, you know, and the challenges that 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 are put in front of you and the obstacles. Um, 
and I think I've had to learn so much on the job. There's so you don't learn how to manage events. You know, it, you're just going to find out. I've learned really from the university of life kind of angle from it, um, where, you know, you make a mistake, then you think, right, I don't do that again. So I learned, just learned very quickly from mistakes I might have made in the early, early years and learning how to deal with two managers who, you know, who might come at you with um, a kind of ferocity that would seem kind of at odds with the, with the venue and the environment that, you know, they're met with. But this is it. This is working with people who've never worked with, personalities you've never worked with before, how to handle an artist, when to leave them alone, when to give them a kick up the arse because sound checks running late, you know. And it's all stuff that you just have to learn gradually. I mean, I remember when you and Shiv, um, our young events programmers started, it, it took a hell of a lot of it. It was a huge wrench for me to let you go and do it, you know, because I'd controlled and supervised every single show till then. And I remember, I think you must have been in the hall where you and I was sat at home and I was still glued to my phone. I was still glued to social media thinking, how's this going? Da, 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 da. And then, you know, sometimes you'd say, oh, someone's gone missing or the guys are asleep in the van or Robin Hitchcock's not turned up. What are we going to do? And um, But it's always okay on the night. You know, it's interesting. All these kind of frantic, frenetic, um, pulling your hair out behind the scenes. The, the audience don't see any of that, you know. The, the audience, it's very professional, um, professionally delivered. I mean, I just read um, Emily Matris's memoir, um, Airhead, and she talks about how if only the viewer could see how close everything comes to going wrong, it'd scramble the brains because so much could easily go wrong all the time. And it's a little bit the same with the gigs. You know, when um, bands just go... They think it's fine to go and have some food. And then they go and have the food and then it takes them a, a long time to get served. And, and you're thinking, you know, like, it's, it's, it's sound check. Where is everybody? And you're asking the tour manager and then you start to panic. And, and then they come in and they're like laid back and, oh, sorry, man, you know. And um, it's just those, those events, those kind of instances happen all the time. Um, because it's like herding cats, you know. It really is like herding cats when... You know, the, you always lose a drummer, he always wanders off. And it's like, ah. Oh. Um, so stuff like this happens all the time. And there's no, there's no course to show you how to deal with that kind of event. That's just kind of social skills and patience and knowing what works and how to play people and how to, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's kind of, there's no handbook, really. There's no handbook at all. Um, that can teach you that stuff. You're just going to do it, and then you'll have you'll have made mistakes and learned from them in your time already. Mm. And it's just Definitely. kind of random. I'm not going to do that again. You know, even in terms of what time you rock up at the venue or what time you, you know, and you get to know the library partners and the guys we work with and the, the women we work with, and it's kind of it's um, it's a learning curve. The whole thing's like I'm still learning now. I'm still learning now, and I've been doing it since 2005. But it's it's a wonderful, wonderful job with wonderful opportunities, and it never ceases to bring you joy. Mm. And um, I think in in the last year we've had some really like big moments. You know, in December we had uh, Tim Burgess during his book signings, which was a 
very different kind of event for us um but it was a big success because you know it was amazing to hear all the stories that he has to tell of his time progressing through the industry and he's always been a sort of great advocate of what we do Tim's fantastic in fact uh, I dropped him a line the other day because um Keith Richards was um trending for other reasons really quite um negative reasons uh, Keith was trending not his fault it was just involved with um, something going on at the moment and um, I just remembered what an advocate Keith Richards is of libraries you know he's he's, he's often thought about training to be a librarian because he's got a private library at home and he, he wants to make the most of it um, and I dropped him a line just saying oh you know I've tweeted something that's really blown up and I think he just captures the imagination when a rock star is into libraries and Tim is like that Tim Tim has always embraced and advocated libraries and we're always looking for people like Tim who, yeah, the, the famous in their own right for being a rock star and writing brilliant material, but they're also, they've got a social conscience and they've got um, an arts conscious, you know, conscience. And um, when people are like that, you, you, you want to get to know them, you want to get them on side, you want to get them in the gang. Uh, so Tim's played for us. He's played a show at Kendall Library previously, and we've just kept in touch. And um, you know, we're not in each other's pockets, but we admire each other's work from afar. Really, with his listening parties, which have obviously got through, got people through lockdown brilliantly, haven't they? And um, yeah, it's kind of we'll probably do more of that stuff in terms of um, people with books out. You know, when it's appropriate, um, and we'll. We'll talk to publishers probably more in the next couple of years of our NPO journey um, because it's all part of it. You know, I've, I've just always thought rock music and books go together. I've never, you know, I've never, I've never, I've never really part. They're all in the same boat for me. They're all in the same mix, you know, same ingredients of this wonderful cake. Mm. I think, yeah, music, music is storytelling in a way. Um, it's you know i i've got into poetry <laughs> recently through artists like for me seeing Sinead o'brien and hearing her sort of how poetic her music is just made me really uh connect with with poetry and explore sort of a different side of it And then at the end of last year, we were lucky enough to host the amazing Kate Tempest in Lancaster Library. Um, booking her must have felt like quite a milestone because she's someone who, again, writes poetry, writes books and is at that intersection of literature and music. Yeah, we chased Kate for a long, long time and it was getting a bit frustrating when being completely honest. I just thought, I never thought we'd get her, you know. Um, but finally, I mean, this happened completely by... You know, you make your own look um, with with stuff, with life and with music. And so often I will just think, you know what, I'm going to drop this agent to line and I'm going to ask, how about a Christmas day to Lancaster Library? Let's do it. And, you know, the amount of times I've done that, Connor, and it's come up roses. So it happened with Kate when it was like, oh, well, actually, um, this might work. Um, what dates are available? I was like, oh, and then you just kind of frenetically... You know, you explode into this urgent kind of mania of let's let's get this artist nailed down. Um, 
and as it happened, um, other people um, were at that show rather than me because you know other people were even bigger fans than I am of Kate. Um, but the pictures and the, the photos and the feedback are just so rewarding. And Kate's engagement with the library and everything about her just was superb. Thing, I mean, we, we, we've always historically done a Christmas show and it's always been at Lancaster. So um, I think previously, this is the kit, uh, Mr. Hudson, I think BC Camelot was January, so a bit late, late. But it, it's nice to have this kind of, um, kind of trend, this kind of, um, you know, this custom that we've started to have of a Christmas show. And it's just getting the right kind of artist to play that show. Yeah, I think, well, you know, I think that, that comes about because Lancaster's sort of our, our home, really, where all of this started. And um, having a little Christmas show there, it's quite homely. It's usually raining or freezing cold outside, so everyone huddles in. Yeah, it's, um, it is our spiritual home. I mean, you know, one day it should have a blue plaque, really, because it of the should. artists that have gone through. Because when you, when, you, when you walk into Lancaster Library, for me, it's kind of full of ghosts, you know, of all these amazing artists who played. I mean, when we did uh, the Civil Wars, who broke up quite soon afterwards, but the Civil Wars were, were this Gothic country duo. Um, and they just won a Grammy. They had won a Grammy a week before they played Lancaster Library. And I remember the agent emailing me saying, can you believe that this band are going to play your show? And I said, honestly, mate, I can't, I can't believe it, you know. Uh, but they were just really humble people. They were just lovely. I mean, it's interesting. It's so friendly. It's a warm, friendly hug of a gig experience for artists and fans alike. And it's only when you're there that you get your head around what these gigs are like, I think. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them have been on the road for ages and going into sort of basement venues or huge cold warehouses and arenas and things. And it's just mm -hmm. nice to come somewhere that's a bit more welcoming. Yeah, you know, the green room's got a nice little plasma, hasn't it? And, um, you know, it's lockable. Everything's warm, cosy, clean. I mean, just on the basic on basic kind of level, um, you would rock up and think, oh, this is nice. This is quite, this breaks up the rock box kind of tour circuit nicely. And I remember Robert Forster from The Go-Between saying that very thing, really, that he didn't want to play rock boxes when he played us in about, again, 2010, 2011. He wanted to play kind of almost civilised cultural venues. Um, and he was superb. I was a massive fan of the uh, go-between. So that was um, that was a coup for me personally. Yeah, this kind of sense of community that I think bands are more are embracing the fact that there's a sense of community spirit about the gigs around, um, you know, the fundamental value that putting on this brilliant live performance on a Sunday afternoon can, can afford people. I think Liz Lawrence really got that at Witness Library the fact that music is important music belongs everywhere music belongs where a family where little baby with ear defenders her mom and her grandma can sit side by side and have a fantastic time watching music you know and it's not like you know there's a place for everything there's a place for that kind of musical enjoyment there's a place for crowd surfing and think people just going mental and i think we're somewhere in between 
you know i think we can we can buy into all elements of that we've had mosh pits we've had you name it we've had it it's just in a library um and long may it continue Exactly. Well, um, it's been a pleasure delving into the history of Get It Loud and our beloved Lancaster Library with you, Stuart. Uh, There's been so many great moments and having all of these huge artists in our humble local library is such an unbelievable achievement. Thanks, Connor. Thanks for asking me. It's um, been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Loudon Libraries podcast. To stay updated with our upcoming shows, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Loudon Libraries, like our Facebook page and visit our website, getitloudonlibraries.com for more information.